I heard that future casting is an essential tool for long-term business. According to a recent poll, 48% of Canadians say they are $200 or less each month away from again? Do you think the energy sector Filter out the noise. Hear it straight from the CPA's mouth. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Straight from the CPA's Mouth. I'm Gordon Turtle, Senior Vice President of Communications and Recruitment at CPA Alberta, and I'll be your host for this podcast. This episode of Straight from the CPA's Mouth marks the third of four episodes in a series of specials for Financial Literacy Month. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting a panel of three very smart CPAs who volunteer for the CPA Canada Financial Literacy Program and they'll be discussing the art of saving and spending wisely. So welcome to all of you. Um, our panelists today are Eileen Campbell, Vice President of Finance at McLab Properties Group, Tim Onsel, CFO at Silvacom Group, and Justin Wong, Director of Special Projects at McEwen University. Welcome everyone, and thanks for being here. It's yeah. great to have you here during Financial Literacy Month. And obviously our topic today is financial literacy. And I'd like to start uh, first maybe asking you, Eileen, why is financial literacy important to you? Financial literacy for me is a very important life skill. It is something to me will help each one of us or every individual save some money, uh, gain that financial freedom that I think everybody is uh, wanting to achieve. Um, What about you, Justin? Yeah, I think it's uh, really close to what Eileen is also saying too. Is It's really important. It helps uh, the people over to equip people with the knowledge and skills we need to manage money effectively. Well, that's a good way. That's almost the definition of what financial literacy is, I guess, is those skills to manage money uh, effectively and, and properly. Um, uh, Tim, anything to add? You know, I think we as finance professionals, we take it for granted. You know, we assume that everyone's been able to benefit from the lifelong learning that being a CPA provides. Uh, we forget it's not something that our current educational system really uh, emphasizes as they go up through the uh, primary and secondary program. Uh, but they are lessons that affect our entire life. You know, I've often wondered, like, I understand the importance of financial literacy, but it seems like today... Um, there are so many sources for information and there are apps and uh, websites and podcasts about financial literacy. But do you, do you find in the work that you do in this area that there's still a lot of people who lack the basics uh, of what financial literacy is and how to manage their money? Mm-hmm. Very, very much so. so. Definitely. Definitely. Definitely, yes. And why do you think that is? It, you mentioned um, that it's not taught in school. Do you think it should be? I think it should be. I think it's, it's, it you have the apps, but unless you have an intrinsic interest in that topic, you don't get drawn to that application and, and buy it or read it or whatever, right? So, Yeah, I think that's really a good point. And also, it's the fact that, uh, you know, unfortunately, people uh, shy away from this issue. It's, uh, you know, almost even a taboo issue that uh, people don't really want to research or they kind of put their heads in the sand kind of thing for, for this type of uh, topic, I feel. Yeah, I also agree with my with my friends here, Tim and Justin. Um, if you look at our curriculum, like elementary or university, uh, unless you're in the financial world, you don't get that basic uh, financial learning or um, literacy that uh, each 
individuals who will definitely need. So I think we need to have some kind of a, a change in the curriculum to just focus a little bit more on the practical side of it, not necessarily learning financing or accounting, but really learning more about the practicality of financial literacy. Hmm, interesting. And I guess like from the other side, um, people are, it seems, bombarded by offers to get this credit card and that credit card and finance a, a new vehicle or a new boat or whatever. And so it's very easy to slip into uh, maybe a high debt situation because it's, it seems so easy and people are kind of throwing it in your face all the time. Yeah, definitely. Even you, you see uh, in the news just constantly just record high debt levels for, for the Canadian populace. It's, uh, it just kind of feels a little scary that it just keeps on climbing and climbing. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to the, the U.S. Uh, previously before, the, uh, before their, the downturn there that they had record high debt levels as well. For sure. Um, I want to talk a bit about the role of saving in a person's life, its impact on their finances and, and how to save. And I'm I'm sure that each of you will have some insights into that. But what role does saving play in, in a person's life and why is it important? You know, should people start saving the minute they graduate from high school? Or um, What are your thoughts on that, um, Eileen? I would say as soon as we can, like as young as we can. I grew up, um, I, I was very lucky that my parents were very focused on making sure that we all know how to handle money. So as soon as we got some, you know, your your $5 gift from uh, a Christmas or birthday, they opened a bank account. And to me, that gave me a sense of confidence as growing up that, okay, I, I know what money is. I know the value of money, not necessarily knowing that I can buy things with it, but just really getting that idea of saving and be comfortable with it and how you use it. And I think each one of us, as soon as we can, if we can start saving, that'd be good. Yeah, I think that everyone, as soon as they start, even every child, as soon as they understand the concept of money, should be taught uh, savings. And really, it's like taking a dollar and, you know, basically putting 100 pennies on the table um, they can see all these hundred pennies. You know, this is going back in time, not many pennies, but the concept of taking 10 of them and putting them towards uh, savings and then 10 of them going towards your candy jar. And there's something visual, I think, uh, especially when you're, when you're raising children, like that really does help. I, that helped my children to understand out of a dollar, where does it go? Mm-hmm. Yes. And what, what's left at the end of, end, end of the day? So people should start saving even before they finish high school, obviously. Exactly. And um, what are people saving for? Like, do you need to have a purpose to save, like for retirement or to buy your dream house or to buy a new, uh, you know, uh, car? Uh, Do people need like a goal for their savings or is just the concept of saving for its own own good, uh, you know, good enough to convince people to save? Well, I think uh, that it's important to set those goals so then you actually are motivated to save. So, you know, like you were just kind of mentioning, you know, saving up for that maybe a vacation or a trip, uh, it helps them kind of push to kind of uh, make a plan and help figure out where, how much it's going to take to get to that uh, vacation that they want in, let's say, that six-month span, or is it going to take a little too much money to uh, save up to get in that six-month span? So maybe it's a year then. Excellent. So is there like a kind of a rule of thumb you should use, like you should save 10% of your income or you know something like that, or is it just whatever you can do at a particular point in your life? 
I personally think that it, it, no matter what your age and and circumstances, I think you need a buffer against disruption of your of your monthly income. And I always mm-hmm. say six months. You know, it's, whether it's three months or nine months, uh, everyone might have a different risk tolerance. But uh, I've always said, you know, have a six month supply of readily available cash or or somewhere that you can draw off of. Um, like in a cash account or equivalent to a cash account like bonds or something. And, and that prepares you for that potential disruption in income or unexpected expenses. Yeah, and that can happen at any time for sure. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like as Tim said, like you really need to save for that rainy day event um, in terms of, I, have, I read this book uh, a, a long time ago, but I still remember it. It's called The R- Richest, Richest Man in Babylon, and it was written in 1926. And it, in that book, it says 10%. You should save money. I don't know if everybody, each one of us can actually save 10% all the time, but sometimes I think even a dollar, $5 to set aside, and it will just build that momentum of saving. So hmm. that from $5 to 10%, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 10%, at first it doesn't sound like a lot, but then when you think about it you know, from a practical perspective, is that is quite a, a significant chunk. amount. Yeah. And so this is maybe a dumb question, but where should people save their money? Should it just be like in a savings account, or should they start investing, or um, I don't know, where should they save their money? I think uh, definitely the first starting point is definitely in a savings account to build up that emergency fund that everyone's been kind of mentioning so far. But then uh, once that's kind of built, then it is definitely kind of expanding out uh, your horizon there and uh, seeing where you can invest your money in to help it grow. Mm -hmm. Personally, I like using TFSA account. Like for It's similar to what Justin said, savings account, but at least with TFSA, especially if you're saving for a big chunk of money, like, I don't know, a big trip, a Europe trip, or even for a deposit for a house, you can save your money and that money be protected from tax if, if it's growing. So yeah. that's a tax-free savings account. Yes, correct. Okay. And so how does that work um, again? So the tax-free savings account, every individual uh, has a, a certain annual limit. I think right now, or was it last year, we still had $10,000. And cumulatively, it's been really accredited between for each individual. And then as you use it, it's typically after your tax money, after tax money. So it's not tax right now. Uh, any earnings that you do, uh, CRA won't be able to get a piece out of it. But if there are losses, then you don't get to deduct that from any of your gains. I really do like the concept of having your putting money into the TFSA because I find that me personally, if you're putting money into something like a TFSA, you'll think twice about going and grabbing that money on a spon- spont- it's a lot spontaneous. To, yes, it's to more difficult withdraw. to actually go to the bank, ask for a withdrawal, all those kind of things. So, I think it's good to take that and put it in a spot that is not you know, in your face and it's a little bit more, you have to think about it more to actually go grab that cash. Yeah, so it is, it's not locked in, but it's just a little harder to get at. Exactly. Yeah. I would say that with that point of, uh, of having, making it more difficult, I think it also on the flip side too, making it more easier for people to save is to have it automated. So having a small chunk of your salary that you that comes into your bank account to just automatically mm-hmm. get moved over to a different bank account so it's almost like you don't even know or don't even remember that it's it's been moved and um, 
they do say that it's it's not noticeable after a while that that amount of money was gone. Yeah, you know, that's what I've been doing for many years. I just have the bank take a certain amount out of each paycheck and you don't even think of it as money that you're losing, mm-hmm. but yes. it's in a it's an account uh, and sitting there. So. And I think that automatic monthly transfer is critical because if you look at the way we spend now and it's becoming more and more society is is tending towards monthly payments on everything. Like you don't buy a phone, you yes. do monthly payments. Yeah. It's everything is a monthly financing uh sale to you and if you don't kind of match your savings in the same way that you're 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 doing your monthly payments you can get yourself into uh, difficulties yeah for sure i can see that happening so here's the big question uh, everyone gets asked probably you've got say you've got a five thousand dollar visa bill after a big vacation should you postpone your monthly savings and pay that off as quickly as possible? Or what's your advice on, you know, paying off debt versus savings? What's the best balance to strike? Anyone want to take that one on? Uh, Sure, I'll uh, take that on. Uh, So I think it's just dependent on too as well as uh, is important is, is it a high interest uh, side of things? So when you're mentioning about the credit card, uh, yeah, my definitely my advice for those kind of strategies is that uh, you're paying that off bef- and holding off on your investing uh, because you know that 25% uh, interest on that credit card, uh, you can that- equate that to saying, are you going to be able to invest in, in something that's going to give you a 25% uh, return? It's very unlikely that you're going to be able to get something mm-hmm. like that without taking huge amounts of risk. So you can almost flip it and s- consider it as if it's an investment in itself that you're saving money that you can use for later. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good uh, answer. Uh, when I was volunteering with um, CPA Literacy Program, uh, I got a chance to talk to some high school students, and one of the topics that I taught or talked about was good credit, bad credit. So, in one in your question, Gordon, about the five thousand debt, we did an illustration of like, okay, if you buy an iPhone, let's just say it's a thousand dollars, and then you put in your credit card, what's going to happen if you don't pay it off? And then we use because most of our credit cards, if you don't pay. Um, you'll have 18%. Like if you don't pay it right off the bat, it's 18%, right? So we did a compounding qu- uh, calculation and the kids were like, whoa, you mean my iPhone's going to cost that after I, just even a year? So Justin was right. Like if you, if you have a debt that has a really good high interest rate, you pay that off as soon as you can. And then maybe save, save a little bit, um, but yeah, and it, com- it comes back to if you do come across a situation where all of a sudden you have this big five thousand uh, dollar high interest amount, mm-hmm. if you are doing that regular savings and you have a six month cash buffer, you know you're able to take part of that and pay off that visa, you know, and then slowly start to build up your cash reserve again. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Would you recommend? And I know we're just speaking in generalities here, but. Uh, taking money out of your uh, savings to pay that bill off in you know in one fell swoop. I'd recommend I would it. Say, yeah, yeah, I would recommend yeah, it. Would. Definitely. Yeah. It's a little bit painful because you're like, okay, I have this nest egg of, I don't know, $5,000 yeah. and then suddenly you have to cut it in half and then you're like, oh my God. But maybe that will some be something that will help Perf- you in the yeah. future and say, okay, do I really need to 
to spend that money. <laughs> yeah, preferably you didn't run up the $5,000 visa. You actually had cash to pay for that yes. vacation. But <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you don't know me. <laughs> um, so what about uh, like bigger debts? Like say you're financing a new car. Would you recommend that people pay uh, you know, the minimum amount over the longest period of time because that's the least painful or it seems that way at first blush? Or would you recommend making the monthly payment as big as you can possibly manage? Or does it matter? I think I would, uh, personally, because um, my husband just bought uh, a car two years ago and we talked about it. Do we do leasing? Do we do buyout? Do we do monthly payments? And I think it really is about your personal situation. Like if you are really tight, so maybe the question is, do you need that kind of car? Like maybe you should just need a a little bit more, uh, maybe not a first you know, um, a brand new car, but more of a second hot uh, used. Uh, and then, so the question really is what fits your financial situation at that time and make sure that we all need cars just because how Canada or North America's infrastructure is set up, but we definitely need to look at our own personal situation. In my one of my prior lives, I was in the automotive industry. And so I have a fairly... Uh, uh, deep understanding of this topic where it is highly unadvised, ill-advised to stretch out those payments mm-hmm. over 60, 72 months because of the fact that a vehicle is such a quickly depreciating asset. If you if you stretch out that payment over uh, 72 or 84 months, you are like underwater, if you know what that is. Basically, you owe you know twice as much as the vehicle is worth within a couple of years. So on an asset like a vehicle... Mm-hmm. Uh, I would highly recommend a shorter two to three year pay down. So, yeah, someone once told me, and when I was young, he said, "Spend as much as you can afford on your house, and spend as least, least. Uh, uh, as less as as less as you can on your car." So, Justin, any thoughts on that? No, uh, definitely, I agree with uh, my compatriots over here, and I guess even just to kind of look even further deeper too is the fact that you know. Uh, the consumers need to look at the contracts and looking at what actually is going to be happening with those lower interest payments or you know that little promotional uh, interest savings. Uh, what is that going to do in the long run with that contract? And I know a lot of people in this day and age, they, they don't read uh, the contracts that they're signing into, but especially when it has to do with uh, financial Situations, it's definitely a great idea to read and try to understand what is actually going to be happening with the money that you're going to be paying into or the amount that you're going to be owing. So, I did want to ask about saving versus investment. And do you have any thoughts? Like, say a person has just finished uh, school and she starts her first job as the career gets underway. Do you recommend that she? Um, uh, save strictly in savings accounts or is it time to start playing the stock market a bit <laughs> see if you can make some money that way what what are your thoughts on that uh, i always think it's actually really dependent on the person's uh, life situation so uh, is that person actually going to be thinking about owning a house in the near future and so you know they're 
early in their career, so a little bit lower salary, assumingly. And so, um, you know, if that was the person's plan to be starting to be a homeowner uh, very shortly, then uh, it would probably be more into the saving side of things, I would think, uh, that uh, they would be going into uh, for that. But Again, it could be on the flip side too, is that nope, they're just uh, staying at mom and dad's house for an indeterminate time. And uh, so, yeah, then you know, you flip over to the fact that there's very little uh, costs and cash outflow that's coming out there. So, yeah, then definitely it'd be uh, the focus is on the investment side. So, I think it's really just dependent on the particular person's life situations. And I think someone just starting out their career has 30, 40 year time horizon. So in that situation, I'd definitely be highly recommending to go higher, waiting towards stocks, bonds, exchange traded funds, something that has a long time horizon. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, I'm sure a lot of us have heard about the RSP, which is your registered retirement savings plan. If this, um, especially if you're new in your field and you have a new job, and your company offers a matching RSP or a matching pension fund, I think that is, it's it's free money, and it's something that each individual should take advantage of. And to to add to Justin and Tim's comments, I think in when we invest as well, we need to find experts in terms of financial investments, if that's the goal that we want to do. Because even as an accountant, as much as I'd like to read through all those brochures about investments, I think it's best to talk to a financial advisor to get you that full options and to plan your financial health in the future. How do you find a financial advisor? <laughs> Good question. Talk to your friends. <laughs> Talk to friends. Seriously, like it's, it, yes. I think personally, uh, that is my, in my opinion, the best way. Talk to your wide yes. group of people. You're going to get from 10 people, you yeah. get 10 different recommendations, but it's really good yeah. to get that feedback from people that you trust. Mm-hmm. And your bankers too. Like if you have your own, I don't know, when you were young, you have your uh, savings account. Uh, banks now do offer personal um, management, finance management. So they do have their own um, financial advisors now. And the and, advice and the advice from someone that's actually been through three, four market cycles, you know, yes. the stock market goes up and down. Yeah. Uh, talking to someone and getting their opinion is pretty valuable yeah. too because they... They kind of know the pitfalls. And interview them too, right? Yeah, like yeah. I've, uh, before I settled with my financial advisor, I actually had to talk to two or three just to get a feel because to me, I'm being, having a financial advisor is like talking to your doctor or to your dentist. It's very intimate. It's very personal. So you need to get that um, feeling of trust and uh, that you can talk to them and make sure that they understand your goals. That's a really good point. You need to interview your advisor as much as they need to interview you, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. For sure. Uh, I just want to shift a bit from uh, talking about savings to talking about spending. And uh, we all have to spend money um, on things that we need and things that we want. But is there such a thing as good spending and bad spending? And what would the difference be if you were trying to explain that to someone? Kind of going back to your your topic of uh, it's really appreciating assets. You're spending on appreciating assets versus depreciating assets. Spending on a house that either will hold its value or increase could be called smarter than spending on a new Jaguar, which will depreciate 30% the first year you buy it. Now he tells me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Is there such a thing as a smart consumer? I think so, yeah. 
for me, being a smart consumer is really getting to know about the product, not not just your car. Like typically, if it's a car or it's a house, we do research who are the builders, who are the uh, manufacturers of these products. But even like small things that we look at, like um, clothes or shoes, it's good to get that feel, is this the right purchase for me? And sometimes we love to just splurge or do that quick uh, five seconds, like, oh, I like this product. But sometimes you just have to think about it and be a smart consumer. And I think uh, also being a smart consumer is doing your research. And Mm -hmm. I think uh, in this day and age with easy access to information, it's very easy to take a look at, especially for your uh, high-dollar items that you actually definitely can easily research what the particular things you need to look for and watch out for too as well, mm-hmm. uh, which also then helps you with uh, negotiating prices potentially or just looking at the qual- type of quality of product that you want to be purchasing. You know, you often hear about the psychology of spending and you know, advertisers uh, spend millions of dollars uh, trying to appeal to people through, I guess, psychological um, methods or means of persuasion. Um, and one of the things you often hear about is people had a bad day at work, so, oh, I'm going to go treat myself to a new pair of shoes because I had a bad day at work. Like, and that kind of almost as a therapeutic type of shopping. Is that something you think is common and is that a bad thing? I don't think, you know, like, like smart and, and, and is that a bad thing? You know, it's, it's really subjective. I think that everyone works for their own reasons. And I think that working to spend money is not a bad thing. But I, I do think that you know, if, if, if you're going to call bad spending, it would be borrowing to spend on discretionary items. If you've saved up money and you want to spend it on whatever makes you happy, go for it. You know, it's, it's, uh, I've, I've seen a lot of uh, people save every penny they have to what end, you know, and um, yeah, it's subjective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, uh, Tim, about the uh, finding happiness in, in your spending too as well. And, and I think it's, it's definitely even... My approach has actually always been uh, not just the happiness part, but life experiences. So spending on life experiences. So I feel that it's better to splurge a little bit more on that vacation that you're going to be remembering versus um, that pair of shoes mm-hmm. uh, that you know you're going to have that little short spurt of happiness, but uh, it kind of goes away after that. Uh, those shoes get a little dirty, scuffed, and uh, and they're not so shiny after a little while. Yeah, and um, you know, going, to, going from there, like, is there a role that people's personal values play in in uh, in how they manage their money and how they spend and save? Like, it, it it's not simply a, it's not always a, a rational, logical decision. There might be some under underlying values there. I'm guessing. Have you found that? I th- yeah, I think so. Like, and that's why I really think financial literacy should start when we're young, because that's when our values also uh, is being formed. And I always talk about uh, respecting money. And if we respect the money, then whether we're in that position of, uh, I need to feel happy, I need to feel I'm in a really dark place right now, I need to be able to spend a little bit, treat myself a little bit. And then if you have that values, and sometimes maybe you'll be like, oh, maybe I don't need to spend that uh, on this little splurge and just really hold off just a little 
little bit. And sometimes, like, you know what? I really went through a really great experience. Uh, I worked hard. I need to treat my family, my friends, and uh, feel good about it. Like, respecting money is not about hoarding it. It's more about really putting it into good use so we don't put ourselves in a financial difficulty. And someone who's really over, you know, they have an overabundance of spontaneity and impulsiveness, that can be very dangerous. Yes. And it's one thing that uh, you have to learn how to moderate. And I think another danger area is also the, you know, quote, uh, keeping up with the Joneses too yes. as well, right? So uh, that's also a little danger area as well, I think, that people need to be cognizant of as well. And advertising can create a lot of that kind of pressure. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely, yes. yeah. You you need this to be cool. Or you need mm-hmm. this to you know show you know you're successful and that kind of thing. But I think you made a good point, Tim. That it's not a bad thing if you've got the money, you've saved, you've worked hard. You can treat yourself every once in a while without feeling guilty, as long as you're not running up too much debt to do so. Exactly. What happens when people have run up a lot of debt? Like you're you just all of a sudden you realize oh, this has gotten unmanageable. My monthly payments are threatening to outstrip my monthly take-home pay. What can people do in that kind of situation? It's, it's a challenge. Once, once you get yourself into that situation, it is extremely difficult to uh, backpedal, but it's in everyone's power to do so. You know, everyone will have kind of a, a point that they realize the situation they're in. And so you, know, you, can, you can talk to a financial advisor, you can talk to an insolvency a bankruptcy person to mm-hmm. to help you tread through that situation, uh, but um, it's not good. Like Justin was saying, putting your head in the sand—that's uh, not a solution, and you have to confront it. Yeah, you should probably never stop making payments and try and just uh, ignore the fact that those bills are coming in. I guess no. <laughs> And I think also uh, the one piece too that some uh, there's different kind of strategies on, even on paying off that debt and kind of getting out of that uh, that really dark vicious cycle. And um, you know I think there's a a little bit of a common perception and just it's just a numbers thing where uh, they are trying to pay off either one of two things. One, they're trying to pay off the largest uh, loan or or debt that they have. Uh, so, for example, the mortgage, uh, or just paying off, you know, that one credit card with a lower interest rate, but uh, they can get pay off really, really quickly on one go. But I think really, again, the focus should be on the ones with the higher uh, interest rates and the ones that are causing the most amount of debt is actually the ones that should actually be focused on. I think to mm-hmm. be able to try to get out of that that uh, that rut that they're in. Is there a wide range in interest rates for credit cards? Should people shop around for the best credit card and, and the lowest interest credit card? Or are they much? Are they all pretty much the same? I think it's almost the same. Like um, the last time that I look at our credit cards, it's pretty much BMO, RBC, all that big um, financial, the Visa and the uh, Mastercard. They pretty much have the same credit. For, Credits, but they also offer some kind of transfers as well. Like sometimes they'll be like, hey, if you want to transfer your certain balance, you have 0%. So those are one of the tricks that the credit companies do give out. And is that something people should do? Should they take advantage of that? Or is that just another way of, of you know, a bank getting money out of you? I'd highly recommend going to other financing <laughs> sources than <laughs> using your credit cards as your short-term financing. Yeah. 
I agree with Tim yeah. too. Like if if you have an option, don't do it. But if credit card is the only way that you can get um, the five per, the zero percent zero percent balance transfer actually makes sense. So long as you have a plan, though, like you need to be able to plan pay off that debt because soon as that the term typically six months you're lucky to get a year. As soon as that term is over, then the 18%, the 22% rates actually starts kicking in immediately. So, Yeah, and uh, this is also kind of where I was kind of mentioning with uh, regards to kind of reading the fine print because uh, that's definitely that they're, those ones are transferring at the 0%, but they also... In the you know fine detail of that, they have that you know transfer fee of four percent. So mm-hmm. still better than obviously, let's say the twenty percent or twenty six percent that you're being paying uh, with the other credit card, but uh, still realize that it's 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 not free. Let's I didn't put it that know way. that. Interesting. <laughs> Are there some types of products or services that people should never spend money on? In in your view, hmm. well, for me personally, it's uh, I. I definitely always advise people not to be the the person that is the lead on purchasing technology. So being the first person to have that new Internet of Things, uh, let's say maybe that security camera or that uh, automatic uh, door lock, um, you know, it's always better, I find, to wait for the first version to kind of get the kinks out of it and then uh, have some of those things fixed before you kind of purchase the newfangled thing. <laughs> uh, good to know. What about, um, like, you know, there are lots of offers, you know, invest in this and you'll make a ton of money. And, you know, you hear about people getting scammed by Ponzi schemes and other things. How can people protect themselves against um those kinds of uh, risky ventures. Going back to what Eileen was talking about, getting uh, if you if you are not really financially astute in the investing world, it is definitely worth uh, getting advice from a financial advisor. And again, talk to talk to your ten closest friends before you start going into these things. Uh, Ponzi schemes thrive on don't tell your friend you're getting such a great deal. <laughs> and as soon as you hear that, you better uh, get some advice. Start start asking your friends because uh, risk and reward, you you don't get money for free. You know, as the risk goes, if, if the rate is guaranteed uh, higher than what you'd get uh, elsewhere, there there's definitely a higher risk profile. So true, yeah. Uh, to me, my personal motto is: if if it sounds too good to be true, it's too good to be true. So, take a, a really hard look. If somebody comes in and say you're starting your investments and say, "Hey, I can give you um, double of the rate of returns in the market. I can beat that by I don't know ha." double or something, do a research, read through it, ask a lot of people, as Tim said. And yeah, more information that you have, the more that you can protect yourself from the Ponzi schemes. So when you do um, workshops or talk to individuals or high school students about uh, financial literacy, what kinds of questions are the most common? Like, what do, you, what do you find are the things that are on people's minds? I want to be a millionaire. How do I get there? That's, uh, <laughs> oh, that's, really? that's probably... Uh, <laughs> One of those kind of common questions, and it's it's they're always thinking it's going to be some magic bullet that's going to be able to get there. And for most of normal people, that's that's not necessarily the case, right? It's it's uh, it it's over time, and it's through discipline of of and knowing 
being financial literate? In my opinion, it, when I'm when I'm teaching the financial literacy in my company, I find that a lot of people will go, "Okay, I'm in rough times, and okay, now I'm getting out of my 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 difficult financial situation." They vastly underestimate the time that they have to kind of wait until they've kind of started to get their life back on track before they start doing this discretionary spending. They believe that, okay, I've gone one month making more money than spending. Now I can go and hog wild on some discretionary spending. So that's the biggest thing is, is making people understand that you, you have to give it time before you start getting back into some of the behavior that might have got you in the soup to begin with. Yeah, for me, it's the credit card question. So for high school students, they'll ask, what is credit card? I see my mom and dad uh, pull out this fancy card and suddenly we have stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So they want to know what is credit card, especially the ones that are in grade 10 and 11. They want to know because they know that come university, they'll be inundated with these offers of credit cards because they're 18 years old and they can get this uh, fancy little cards and get whatever they want. So they're very interested in knowing that for workers or for working people, um, they do ask a lot about investments. Where do I invest? Where, how do I find the right investment vehicle for my uh, RSP? So there's a lot of saving questions. One, one other thing when I'm teaching financial literacy in companies too, uh, the fact that uh, our governments regularly overspend and create deficits and debt People, I find increasingly are having difficulty understanding the difference between the government. It's okay for the government to spend more than they bring in versus me personally. So it's debt is becoming trivialized, and it, it's, it's a, that's a very dangerous thing. Um, Justin, any thoughts on that? Uh, just to kind of mention about the, um, the investment side, I think, is too, is uh, uh, I'm always a proponent of advocating uh, self investing and and from shying away from the financial advisors just specifically more for the investment side if, if it's just financial planning inside of things that's definitely a great great uh, resource to have but from the uh, investment side there's a lot nowadays with technology that there's kind of uh, essentially like do it yourself um, but not necessarily uh, completely by yourself the you know uh, I don't know if some people have heard through through the news there's uh, robo advisors so uh, the, it's automated uh, investing in in areas that or risk levels that you're comfortable with, and uh, and it's again not handled by anyone in particular, uh, and the the management fees, which is also a, a, an area I'm always uh, adamant in expressing, is is a lot lower. Um, some of the financial advisors, and that's definitely why you want to look into or doing your research on when you're picking those financial advisors is how much are they charging for giving you that advice or recommending that certain investment. Um, you'll find over time that you know if you're starting early, that actually adds up a lot uh, to a lot of money. Uh, even that you know even that half a percent of of management fees over the long run of 30, 30, 40 years is still a significant amount, like we're talking about probably tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, so it's just something to consider as well. That's a good way of, uh, of putting it for sure. If someone is thinking of starting uh, their own business, uh, say they've just graduated with a commerce degree and uh, want to become an entrepreneur, um, any ideas on 
uh, how they can approach that from a uh, you know a fiscally responsible perspective. That's that's really tough. Like, good on them on being a, a business owner right off uh, university. I would say really get a good business plan. Like, first know the product or service that you want to offer, and. Uh, like how are you going to earn money? Who are your clients? Who are the customers? Those are the key fundamental questions that you need to ask if you want to start your own business. And the at bottom line too, you need some kind of financing to get your uh, business running. The the bank of mom and dad might get you to the first year or two, but past that, you need more substantial financing. Yeah, anyone that you know from beyond the money side, if anyone wants to start their own business, I highly recommend work in the industry first for a little bit, just to get an understanding of the basic fundamentals of the business. Uh, a lot of people fall into the trap that this is a great idea. I know nothing about the business. If you know nothing about the business, it's probably not a wise thing to, to start off. But from the financial side, yeah, it, it uh, um, do go in with you know six to 12 months of backstop funds yourself before you plunge into something like that, because you want to keep control of your destiny. And if you start getting extended by a lot of different financiers, you lose control of your destiny pretty quickly. And I think another thing to to mention in a, in a different avenue, or if their approach when they're starting up the business is to have something completely new and different, so something that then they can't follow Tim's side of things because there's no one out there that actually is doing that side of things. Um, the funding and financing and support is usually out there in larger cities uh, for those kind of startup companies. So, for example, you know, Startup Edmonton or, or areas like that or Tech Edmonton where they are able to provide uh, kind of support or mentorship uh, through their partnerships with other uh, companies and institutions and uh, potentially financing as well uh, for their endeavors. Fantastic. Um, Eileen, Tim, Justin, I want to thank you for your time today. And before we close, I want to ask one final question to each of you. It's uh, something you're not prepared for, so this will be <laughs> off the cuff. But If um, someone were, were to ask you, what single piece of financial literacy advice would be most important to them or most valuable to them, what would that be? I would say save. Save your money. Um, every dollar counts. So don't worry about the, the, the amount or the percent. If it's a, a dollar, a five dollar, just save that money and um, time is your friend. So compounding interest and all that. So, Justin? Yeah, that was definitely, uh, you stole my thunder on that one. I, uh, <laughs> you have to I, think of something else now. No, I was going to focus on more so the compounding interest side of things and understanding what that is and what that means because it's both your friend and ally and also your worst nightmare. So uh, it's definitely getting a better understanding of that because that plays into a lot of different mm -hmm. parts of, of financial literacy, whether it's saving, investing, uh, your debt, it, it covers a lot of different areas. And I would say uh, nothing measured, nothing gets done. And meaning that check your, check your situation regularly, like weekly, monthly, quarterly, you know, put it down on paper. Where was I three months ago? Where am I now? And, and, and set goals, set goals right from the get-go. Wow, awesome advice. Thanks to all three of you. And there you have it, straight from Thank the CPA's mouths. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you. Thank you. 
This special series on Straight from the CPA's Mouth focuses on all things financial literacy and showcases what the experts have to say about smart money management. I want to thank again our three panelists for coming in today and and helping out with such um, wise and timely advice. Make sure to tune in to our next episode featuring a guest whose journey from bankruptcy to early retirement inspired her to spread the word about financial literacy. And don't forget to subscribe to the Straight from the CPA's Mouth mailing list for additional content and perks. Thanks for listening. Straight from the CPA's Mouth is brought to you by the CPA Education Foundation. The CPA Education Foundation is the charitable arm of the Alberta CPA profession, providing up to $1.2 million each year in support of business and accounting education in the province. This podcast is just one of many resource materials available through the HESHI CPA Knowledge Centre. This virtual hub features Alberta CPAs sharing their unique perspective and vast expertise on topics and issues such as leadership, finance, entrepreneurship, and more. Visit cpaalberta.ca slash foundation for more information on the HESHI CPA Knowledge Centre and to learn how Alberta CPAs inspire success.